Before we jump into our time of preaching today, um, just a just a reminder. I'm really saying this for myself um, as we as we lift our voices and singing songs of praise to the Lord. Um, I hope that you pay attention to the words that you sing. It will minister to your soul. Um, the songs that that we have sung, that the choir has sung. Um, uh, that second hymn that we sang, uh, it's not one that I'm extremely familiar with, uh, but the words are just rich. I mean, we just sang some deep, deep truths from God's Word, and uh, just rich theology, rich in gospel um, truth, and uh, and so I just hope that I hope that uh, even as we sing together, that we are. Our souls are being fed even through the song and uh, songs that we sing. And uh, it, it's, an, it's, a, it's a way that we encourage one another as we sing together. But it's also a way that God um, sanctifies us and grows us in holiness. And uh, so I, I'm, I feel like I'm saying that more for myself. But uh, for what it's worth, maybe someone else needed to hear that as well. Today we want to be in Psalm chapter 51. And so if you open up your copy of God's Word to the book of Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 51. As you turn there, let me ask you something. Have you ever looked at a piece of junk in your house? I'm assuming that at some point you've had a piece of junk in your house. Um, if, if not, I'm sorry to offend you, uh, but I'm assuming everyone has had a piece of junk in your house at some point, or maybe outside your house, maybe in your shop or something like that, um, and uh, maybe up in the attic. But you look at a piece of junk and you just say, what am I going to do with that? You ever, you ever said that, right? Or maybe you have some garbage that you couldn't simply just throw in the trash can. Maybe it was made out of some certain chemicals or materials that maybe were harmful to the environment or, or for some other reason that you couldn't just chunk it in the trash can. And so you looked at that and you thought, how am I going to get rid of that? How, how am I going to get rid of that? I don't want it here. I don't want to see it anymore. And uh, it's not it's not good for anything. And so I want it gone. But how do I get it gone? On a much more serious note, perhaps you have asked the same thing about the sin that is in your life. I know I have. You've committed a sin. It's been brought to your attention. And now you wonder, well, what is next? What should I do when I am convicted of sin in my life? The short answer is you need to repent. I need to repent. Well, what is repentance? Let me give you a, a definition as we begin. To repent is to turn away from sin by turning toward Jesus, receiving God's forgiveness and restoration. Receiving God's forgiveness and restoration. To repent is to turn away from sin by turning toward Jesus, receiving God's gift of forgiveness and restoration. We have an incredible example in the life of King David of a sinner crying out to God for repentance. A couple of weeks ago, we learned about the dark side of sin as we studied 2 Samuel chapter 11. And in that chapter, we found David committing sin. There's no other way around it. He, he, he had entered into this moment in his life where he was committing lots of sin. We saw David stay home from battle. We saw him look at a woman, lust after her, commit adultery with her, deceive her husband, and purposefully authorize a terrible military strategy. 
that would kill the woman's husband, who was one of his leading fighting men, and in the process was going to kill a lot more of the army as well. At the end of Second Samuel chapter 11, we saw these words, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, David had sinned. He had experienced the dark side of sin. And then last week, we turned to the next chapter in 2 Samuel, chapter 12. We looked at the first half of chapter 12, and there we saw God mercifully rebuke David. You see, David was blind to his own sin. He couldn't even get to this step that we're going to talk about today and for the next couple of weeks because he was just looking right through his sin as if he hadn't done anything wrong. And so God mercifully had a man named Nathan come to David and point out the sin in David's life, which led to David confessing his sin and receiving forgiveness. So the end of our passage from last week, Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, we saw this. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. David was forgiven. But it's just one little quick short statement. So I have to ask this question. Is there more behind David's statement than simply uh, an admission of sin? Oh, yeah, I sinned. All right. God forgives you. Is there more behind it? I mean, you can admit you have sinned without actually repenting of your sin. Did David just admit his sin or was there more to this confession? I think there was more. God's word tells us there was more. Behind the statement of confession was a sinner's genuine cry of repentance. And I praise God for his word that he recorded this cry of repentance for us in Psalm chapter 51. The question before us today is this, how should we respond to sin in our lives? When we experience that dark side of sin and then experience God's merciful rebuke, we know we have sinned, it's been pointed out to our lives, and we say, all right, how do I get rid of that? What do we do? Thankfully, David wrote a song about how he dealt with this particular sin in his life. A song about repenting. So we turn to Psalm chapter 51 to answer this important question. What should I do when I am convicted of sin in my life? Or we could put it this way. How do I repent? Let's read Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Pray with me. Father, would you impress these words into our hearts and minds today? Father, whatever needs to change in us, Father, I pray that we would have teachable spirits and a desire to respond in obedience to your word. Father, work in our hearts right now in this place through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to spend a few weeks in this psalm. I had a choice to make. We could... We could, we could spend one week here and kind of breeze through Psalm chapter 51, or we could just settle down and immerse ourselves in this incredibly important psalm for, for a few weeks. And so I've chosen the latter. We're going to sit down and we're going to immerse ourselves in this psalm. I'm going to encourage you, uh, before I forget, or I'll forget at the end, I'm going, to, I'm going to challenge you. See if you can not only read this psalm maybe every day, uh, for every day for the next few weeks, it only take you a couple of minutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step it up a little bit more. I'm going to encourage you to see if you can memorize some of this psalm over the next few weeks. For some of you, you can memorize this whole psalm. That's very doable if you, if you try. And so I'm going to just kind of put that homework assignment out there for us. I think it will do good for our souls. I think we'll get more out of our preaching times over the next few weeks as we Spend time personally in Psalm 51 as we commit it to memory. One of the reasons I want you to commit it to memory, not so I can just have you come up here and recite it to all of us. We can clap and say, wow, good job. But so that this psalm will turn into a prayer for you and a prayer for me. That we can use God's words to give words to our confession of sin in our lives. What better way to confess our sin than to use God's words? And so I'll put that challenge out to you. We're going to spend a few weeks here in this psalm. Today, we're going to mainly be looking at the confession aspect of David's cry of repentance. And so when we ask this question, what should I do when, I, when I'm convicted of my sin? I want, I want to share with you the first three truths today. We're not going to look at the whole psalm. I read the whole psalm. We're not going to look at the whole psalm. I want to give you three truths from this passage concerning genuine repentance. And they revolve around this theme of confession. The first is this. We've got to have the right belief. We see David have the right belief in this passage, and we need to have the right belief. You say the right belief about what? The right belief about God. We must believe the right things about God if we are going to genuinely repent of sin in our lives. And see how David describes God in this song. In verse 1, he speaks of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. In verse 4, he says that God is just and blameless. In verse 6, he states that God delights in truth and teaches wisdom. Do you catch those attributes of God? He is steadfast in love and abundant in mercy. He is just and he is blameless. He delights in truth and he teaches wisdom. Think about those descriptions of God's character. David's right response to his sin begins with a right view of God. Now, I want us to start with this point, not only because I think it's one of the clear first things we notice in this psalm. He just starts rattling off attributes about who God is. But also because I believe our view of God will ultimately determine how we view our sin and what we do with it. I often quote A.W. Tozier who said this, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. 
It really is. Who you believe God to be will determine how you live your life. And for our context today, what you do with the sin in your life. If you don't think that God is just and blameless, then you'll just brush brush past your sin like it's no big deal. However, if you have the right understanding that God is just and blameless in all of his ways, then you'll understand that your sin, my sin, it is a big deal. Like we rightfully deserve to be punished by God because he is holy, just, righteous and blameless in all of his ways. On the flip side, if you don't think that God is steadfast in love and abundant in mercy, then you're going to be scared of him when you sin. Maybe you'll be angry with him when you sin. However, if you believe that God is steadfast in love and abundant in mercy, like David says God is in this passage, then when you sin, you will run to him for mercy rather than run away from him in fear. And finally, if you don't think that God is true and wise in all of his ways, then you're not going to agree with him concerning what sin is. When the Bible says sexual morality, which includes lust, pornography, premarital sex, adultery, and homosexuality is sin, you're going to disagree with that. However, if you think that God is true and wise, then you're going to agree with him when he says that these things are sin, even though our culture says they're not. Some of you today have sin in your life that you haven't repented of because you don't think it's that big of a deal. It was just a few quick looks on that explicit website. It was just a little extra time I wrote down on my time card at work that I actually didn't work. It was just a short burst of anger. Certainly God is busy dealing with the people who are committing all those really big sins, right? I mean, certainly the good I've done will make up for these small sins. Listen, if that's you, you're wrong. If that's you, you have a faulty view, not simply of your sin, but you have a faulty view of who God is. God is holy, righteous, and just. He takes sin seriously. He notices sin, and he must punish all sin. You remember Isaiah? A vision he had in Isaiah chapter 6. He he, he finds himself before the throne of the Lord. And the cherubim, seraphim, they're around the throne, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty holy? They're they're exclaiming, they're proclaiming that attribute of God, his perfection, his righteousness, holy, holy, holy. And what is Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord. When we understand the holiness of our God, then we will begin to see the ugliness of our sins. Psalm 78, 21 says, Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. The fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. And if you just think that's the God of the Old Testament, let me give you a New Testament verse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God's holiness means he is wrathful towards sin and sinners. But I think some of you, some of us today, we have sin in our life that we haven't repented of because we don't actually think that God will forgive us. Maybe you say, well, my sin is just too great. My sins are too many. I'm just too far gone. I I think I've probably used up all of my chances. Friend, if that's you, you're wrong too. 
If that's you, you not only have a faulty view of your sin, you've got a faulty view of God. God is loving, merciful, kind, and gracious. He forgives sin, and God finds joy in doing so. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10 says, listen to this, it's beautiful. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. He wasn't saying that to perfect people. He was saying that to a group of sinners. Some of you have sin in your life today that you haven't repented of because you don't think that what you've done qualifies as sin. You think your gossip is just sharing information? You think your lust is just appreciating someone's beauty? You think your complaining attitude is just voicing your thoughts? You think your laziness is simply some well-deserved relaxation? You think that your hateful responses on Facebook to people who disagree with you is just exercising your First Amendment right to free speech? You think your excess drinking is just a way to relax your mind? You think your unwillingness to discipline your child is just letting kids be kids? You think, whatever, I mean, the list could just go on, right? Whether it's due to shifting cultural norms or peer pressure or just ignorance stemming from not spending enough time in God's Word, we rationalize or explain away our sin and we call it something other than sin. And if that's you, if that's me, we are wrong. We have not only a faulty view of our sin, we have a faulty view of God. This passage says that God is truthful and He is wise. That means God desires for our lives to be filled with His truth and wisdom, which means we will agree with Him concerning what he says is sin. If God calls something sin in his word, then guess what it is? It's sin. It doesn't matter what the culture says around us. It doesn't matter what peers say around us, our friends, our classmates, our co-workers, family. It doesn't matter what they say. We take God at his word because he is true and he is wise. Psalm chapter 19 Verse 7 through 11 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward we see all three of these categories of god's attributes holiness his love and his truthfulness and wisdom combined in this verse in jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24 it says this but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that i am the lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight declares the lord genuine repentance begins with believing the right things about God. David had a right belief about God. And listen, we've got to have a right belief about God, too, if we are going to genuinely repent of our sins. But once we have the right belief, we want to move on to the right confession. We want to have the right confession. What is the right confession? Well, we want to confess, let's put it as simply as I can, we want to confess that our sin is as bad as God says it is. Your sin is as bad as God says it is. My sin is as bad as God says it is. That's what we need to confess. 
Verses 3 through 5, we see this confession from David. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. When we believe the right things about God, then we'll agree with God concerning our sin. And whatever God says about my sin, that's what I will say about my sin. I will confess my sin is as bad as God says that it is. What does God say about my sin? First, my sin is my sin. I said that right. My sin is my sin. You say, well... That seems like a very redundant and obvious statement. Thank you, Captain Obvious. My sin is my sin. Your sin is your sin. Well, yes. But that's what David confesses in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Unfortunately, it's not that obvious in our lives when it comes to our sin. Because we don't like to say that my sin is my sin. We like to say that my sin is because of someone else. You see, David is simply and necessarily owning up to the fact that he has sinned. He's not, in verse 3, blaming God. He's not blaming other people. He's not blaming his circumstances. He's not blaming his family. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. How hard that is to own up to our sin. Well, yeah, I did this, but if she had done that, then I wouldn't have done what I did. Nope. Well, if my kids hadn't have been so aggravating today, then I wouldn't have yelled at them. Nope. Well, if my parents wouldn't have so many rules, then I wouldn't have slammed that door. Nope. Confession says my sin is my sin. It's no one else's sin. David agrees with God that his sin is his sin. And notice that his sin is ever before him, which means it is gnawing at him. His guilty conscience is weighing on him. He cannot escape the fact that he, he has sin. What does God say about my sin? First, my sin is my sin, and I need to confess that to him. The second part of this right confession is saying that my sin is truly evil. Notice verse 4. What does he say in verse 4? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What I have done, if it is sin, it is truly evil. Why? Because it is against God. Breaking God's law, which is what the word transgression means. Missing God's mark, which is what the word sin means. It's not merely making a mistake. It is an offense to the holy God, and thus it is evil. God calls Your sin, God calls my sin evil. And so we must call our sin evil. To not do so is to call God a liar. We don't like to think about our sin as evil. We like to to calm it down a little bit with not such harsh language. Well, it wasn't that bad. Yes, it was. If it was sin, it was sin. It was that bad. So we need to confess that our sin is sin and we need to confess that our sin is truly evil. But there's a third thing we see in verse 5 that we need to confess. We need to confess that our sin is deeper than it appears. My sin, your sin, is deeper than it appears. Notice verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. What in the world is that talking about? It means that I have been a sinner since my conception. Since life began. By the way, because that's when life does begin. Since my life began, which is when I was conceived in my mother's womb, 
I have been a sinner. What in the world does that mean? We're not guilty before God merely because we have committed sin. We're guilty before God for a much deeper reason because we were born sinners. You and I inherit a sin nature from Adam. Listen to these verses from Romans chapter 5. It was just one verse, verse 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. See, the sin that we commit is connected to the fact that Adam is our father. It means that you were born a sinner. We're separated from God from the moment life begins, which is the moment of conception. That beautiful, innocent newborn isn't really all that innocent. No, she may not have actually committed a sin yet, but she is already infected with the disease of sin, which is why we must not be shocked when our kids sin. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us. That's also why we must teach and model the gospel to our kids from a very, very early age. You see, David is agreeing with God in verse 5, not only that he has sinned, but how deep his sin runs in his heart and in his life. His sin is not shallow and neither is yours or mine. His sin is not surface level and neither is yours and mine. It's not something that we can just kind of get a rag and wash it off ourselves. It's so deep that you and I can't do anything about it. We cannot get rid of that sin in our lives on our own. His sin runs deep. Our sin runs deep. And so confession involves agreeing with God that my sin is sin. Agreeing with God that my sin is truly evil. And agreeing with God that my sin is much deeper in me than I may like to think. Now that we looked at the right belief and the right confession, let's notice this third and last truth. We want to notice the right attitude of repentance. The right attitude. What is the right attitude of repentance? Probably a lot of different words that we could use, but I'm going to use one word here. It's the word humility. We must humble ourselves before God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are going to genuinely repent of our sins and find God's free gift of amazing, full and complete forgiveness. We can't just believe the right thing about God and confess our sin. Using words that don't come from a heart that is broken over the sin in our lives. You see, it's one thing to say the right thing when it comes to confessing our sin. It's another thing to say it the right way. Now, I don't mean to be picking on kids today, little children, but, uh, but maybe I am. I don't mean to be. Most of you have seen a child do something mean to another child, right? I mean, you put two little, little toddlers in a room together, and one of them's going to hit the other one, or one of them's going to steal the toy from the other one, right? And then they're going to take it back, and then they're going to get it mad, and then it's going to keep escalating, right? We've seen that happen. And so, so one child does something mean to the other child, and the parent says, that was mean. Go tell your brother that you're sorry. So the boy walks over. You know the rest of the story. The boy walks over to his brother and says, sorry. Maybe his voice isn't that deep yet, but one day it will be. He might even take it a step further and actually admit what he did. Sorry, I hit you. And then what does the parent say? No. Say it like you mean it. Right? That's exactly what happens. 
Why the parent need to say, say it like you mean it? Because apparently that child didn't mean really that he was sorry. He just said the words. He confessed his sin. He agreed that what he did was wrong, but he had felt no remorse about it. In fact, he's already probably planning to do it again. He confessed the right thing, but his attitude reveals he is really not sorry. He is really not hurt over the fact that he hurt his brother. You know, the same is true of our confession to God. We can say the right things. We're good at that. We can say that we've sinned. We can say that we've sinned a lot. We can say that we feel guilty about our sin, and perhaps we do feel guilty that we got caught. But unless we see ourselves as completely unworthy of forgiveness, and unless there's genuine brokenness over our sin, both of which flow from an attitude of humility, then we will not repent in a way that leads to forgiveness and restoration. Verses 1 through 2, we see that this humility is displayed when we acknowledge that we don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. You see verses 1 through 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's initial cry for mercy reveals his understanding that he does not deserve what he's fixing to ask God for. He's getting ready to ask God to forgive him, but he starts out by saying, I know I don't deserve this. From the very outset, he is acknowledging that he in no way, shape, or form deserves for God to forgive him. David has not come before God saying, God, remember all the good stuff that I've done. God, I could have done something worse. God, at least I stopped when I did. God, at least I'm not as bad as that other person. No, David knows that he has to be forgiven by God. And if God is going to forgive him, it will be because God chooses to do so based on God's mercy and grace and love in his life. Not because David is offering anything to God that will twist God's arm and in some way make God owe him forgiveness. Forgiveness will not be based on David's merits, but on God's redeeming love. See, genuine repentance comes from a genuinely humble heart that is quick to acknowledge, I absolutely do not deserve for God to forgive me. Then in verses 16 through 17, we see something else that humility displays. We'll jump ahead. I know we're jumping around a little bit in this psalm. But you'll jump ahead to verses 16 and 17. As he begins to bring the psalm to a conclusion, we see this attitude again. It kind of bookends the psalm, the attitude of humility. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. We see here that humility is displayed when we offer God only sorrow for our sin. Verse 1 and 2, humility is displayed when we realize we don't deserve for God to forgive us. Verses 16 and 17 Humility is displayed when we come before God and the only thing we offer him is sorrow, grief over the fact that we have sinned. Now, verse 16 says you will not delight in sacrifice. Of course, God had commanded sacrifices to be made. We read the Old Testament law, read the law of Moses. God had commanded sacrifice to be made. There are all sorts of different sacrifices that one would make to be forgiven of sin. You see, it wasn't sacrifices from a hard heart that God was looking for. 
What mattered more to God was the attitude of the sinner seeking forgiveness. What God wanted to see was genuine and brokenness and sorrow over sin. Well, we struggle with that, right? Just be honest. It's, we struggle with that. If someone hurts you and then comes to apologize and ask for forgiveness, it's hard to forgive if there's no evidence that the person is actually sorrowful over his or her sin. I've seen this in situations between married couples. For instance, let's say the husband has sinned against his wife. So I'm sitting there with them and he admits his sin. He says that he's sorry. But truth be told, he looks and sounds like a cold brick whenever he says, I've sinned and I'm sorry. And then he wonders why his wife is struggling to forgive him. There's no realization of how much he's hurt his wife. We could go the other way with that as well. I'm not saying, please don't hear me wrong, I am not saying in any way that we ought to have some fake tears when we confess our sin to God. God will see right through that. He sees our hearts. But what I am saying is that if we are really sorry for our sin, tears or at least some expression of deep emotion will be involved. Listen, I don't think David cried this psalm out to God like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. I may be clean from my iniquity. No. No. I, I, I can guarantee you David's, David's emotions were overwhelming him. David, a man's mo- emotions were overwhelming him as he cried this out before God. God, have mercy on me. Have mercy, O oh God. broken and contrite heart. Matthew chapter 5 verse 4, Jesus said this, Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James chapter 4 verse 8 through 10, we find these instructions. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humility displayed in true brokenness over our sin. Stop laughing about it and start crying about it. Genuine repentance comes from a humble heart. And that humility is going to be displayed by a clear awareness that we don't deserve forgiveness that we bring, for the forgiveness that we seek. We don't bring our good works before God. We don't bring any attempt to make up for the bad that we've done, we only bring sorrow. There's a place in the New Testament that we see this truth very clearly. Jesus tells this parable. And I think it lines right up with what we see here in Psalm 51 as David confesses his sin. And Jesus tells this certain parable to expose self-righteous behavior of some who are not humble when they were considering their own sin. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this story. Listen to this story and, then, and, and think about it in light of David's cry of repentance. Think about it in light of a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Jesus said this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the difference between these two men? I mean, both of them are sinners. They both need to be justified before God. But one brought to God all his accomplishments, all his good works, while the other brought to God nothing except sorrow over his sin. The one that brought nothing but sorrow was the only one that left actually forgiven. Only, church, church, only when our hands are empty before God, we just cast off all those good things that we think we can bring before the Lord and He'll just overlook our sin. Only when our hands are empty before God, holding nothing but our sorrow. Will we be able to receive the forgiveness that God can graciously give to us? If you don't come to God helpless, then I can guarantee that you will leave hopeless. So when we come before God asking for forgiveness, can we just leave our good works at the door? Just just leave them there. I'm not saying you hadn't done anything good that God is pleased with, but when you come asking Him to forgive you of sin in your lives, just leave your good works at the door and bring only humble brokenness over your sin. God might despise your sin. He absolutely does despise your sin. But He will not despise you if you come to Him with a humble and broken and sorrowful heart. Humility is an attitude that God will never despise. And so we have right belief. We have right confession. And we have right humility. And they all go together. We'll only confess if we have the right belief about God. And we'll only confess rightly if we have a right attitude before God. So let me just ask you this. What sin is in your life today that you need to confess? Not not the person sitting next to you. Not someone else in this room. Not somebody in your family or friend group that's not here, you. What, what sin do you need to confess to the Lord today? Now, we, we haven't even got to the beautiful part of this passage where we see the forgiveness and grace and restoration of God, and we're going to get there. But if we rush too quickly past proper confession, then we won't be able to experience the beautiful forgiveness and restoration of God. What sin in your life do you need to confess Don't keep looking at the garbage of your sin in your life going, how do I get rid of this? What am I going to do with this? Take it to Jesus. How is God able to forgive your sin? Because he punished his son instead of you. He poured out his wrath towards you upon his son. He treated your son like he should have treated you so that he could treat you like his son deserved to be treated. 
And friends, that's the good news of the gospel. We serve a God who is just. He is wrathful towards sin. But we serve a God who is loving and merciful and full of grace toward all who would come before Him in humility. Saying, my sin is my sin, God. And it is evil. And it's deeper than it even looks on the surface. But God, would you forgive me because of what Jesus has done on the cross? I want to close with a few verses from 1 John. As you reflect on whatever sin is in your life today that you need to confess, may these words like music to your soul. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You pray with me. Father, help us simply come before you with humility and brokenness over our sin. And you will do exactly what David cried out there in verse 2. You will cleanse us from all of our iniquities. You will wash us. Purify. Take away our sin. You will forgive. Because of the blood of Jesus. So help us not keep kicking around the sin in our lives. Asking what we're going to do with it. Father, help us to bring it to Jesus. Confess it. And be forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.